Welcome to Full Rigor of Florida True Crime Podcast. I'm your host and artiste du jour, Karen Curtis. And on this episode, I'm going to take you deep into the world of fine art, specifically the art of Jean-Michel Basquiat. He was a neo-expressionist painter in the 1980s who was best known for his primitive style and his collaboration with pop artist Andy Warhol. And he once declared, I can actually draw. And if you see his work, you'll understand what I mean. I'm an artist. I majored in fine art at the University of Hawaii, and then I switched my degree to journalism, but I still paint. I've been painting for over 50 years, and I love watercolor because it paints itself. It is difficult. Anything white is the paper, so it's like you have to think ahead. In oil, you paint from dark to light. So the tip of the nose, the highlight there is the last thing you paint in an oil. But in a watercolor, the tip of the nose, the white reflection on the nose, you have to leave that white paper. So you paint from light to dark with watercolor. And it's very challenging. But the masters used to use watercolors as a precursor to their masterpiece, just kind of lay it out in the watercolor, and then they would switch to oil. And there aren't a lot of really famous female artists, but men seem to be taken more seriously in the art world. So who was Jean-Michel Basquiat? There's like the Jean-Michel Basquiat, who is this profound painter and creator. And then there's Jean-Michel, our brother. My name is Lisanne Basquiat. And my name is Janine Harovo. We were there during the life and times of our brother, Jean-Michel Basquiat. So Jean-Michel Basquiat first attracted attention for his graffiti, and he painted it under the name of Samo, S-A-M-O, in New York City. And he sold sweatshirts and postcards featuring his artwork on the streets before his painting career took off. He collaborated with Andy Warhol in the mid-80s and later a movie in which Andy Warhol was played by David Bowie. I don't even have any friends anymore aside from you. And then everyone says, Warhol, that death warmed over person on drugs, he's just using you. And now they say I'm killing myself, stuff like this. But they, they, they don't want to clean up. Then they say, well, you, look, his art's dead. I don't care anyway because, you know, I'm clean now. I'm healthy. That's just not true, Jean. Well, yeah, he did have a problem with drugs, but we'll get to that. His early life, Basquiat, was born in Brooklyn, New York, December 22nd, 1960. He was a self-taught artist. He began drawing at an early age on sheets of paper that his father, who was an accountant, brought home from the office. And he delved deeper into his creative side after his mom strongly encouraged him to pursue his artistic talents. So we three are the children of a Puerto Rican mother and a Haitian father. Our father came to this country when he was less than 20, and he used to tell the story that he came to this country with a toothbrush in his pocket and couldn't speak the language, and it was cold. And then our mom was from Brooklyn and Puerto Rican. One of the things that our mom did was she brought Jean-Michel to the Brooklyn Museum to ensure that he got a, a membership card. And so he became a member at a very, very young age. Yeah, when you're exposed to art at a young age and it inspires you, that's when you know you're an artist. And he was inspired. In 1977, Basquiat quit high school a year before he was slated to graduate. And to make ends meet, he sold sweatshirts and postcards featuring his artwork on the streets of New York. I realized that things were starting to unfold for Jean-Michel when I went to a show that he had at the Adina Nose Gallery. There were all these like beautiful people around. And it was then that I really started to recognize that he 
was really doing well and making this happen for himself. And in his earlier works, Basquiat was known for using a three-pointed crown motif. It was really his signature, which was his way of celebrating black people as majestic royalty or deeming them as saints. And I think he also was very clear about who he was as a black man and the way that he portrayed himself through the symbolism of a crown. He knew that he was royalty. He knew that he was valuable. Jean-Michel's crown has three points and it was for his three royal lineages as a poet, a musician, and a great boxing champion. Now, three years of struggle gave way to fame in 1980 when Basquiat's work was featured in a group show and his work and style received critical acclaim for its fusion of words, symbols, stick figures, and animals. And soon his paintings came to be adored by the art-loving public that had no problem paying as much as $50,000 for a Basquiat original. Then, in the mid-1980s, Basquiat collaborated with Andy Warhol, and that's when things really took off. It resulted in a show of their work that featured a series of corporate logos and cartoon characters. The collaboration show between Jean-Michel and Andy Warhol, for whatever reason, received really negative press, and the critics were not kind to the work and to Jean-Michel, and some of the words really dug deep for him and really affected him mentally. And he pulled away from a lot of people. He distanced himself from Andy. And then shortly after that, with Andy's passing, that really, really hit him hard. I called him to express my condolences. He could really barely talk on the phone. And so I think those two things just had him at a place where he felt alone. I think that that's probably one of the things that hurt the most was that he was in that place and was feeling that way right around the time that he passed away. You know, for years afterwards, I would think, you know, if he could have just, you know, seen, just kind of seen himself around that corner. He had a family and we all loved each other very, very much. And we all still do. Ultimately, you know, we lost a brother and our parents lost a son. And that's very tough to live through. Yes, as his popularity soared, so did Basquiat's personal problems. And by the mid-1980s, friends became increasingly concerned about his excessive drug use. He became paranoid and isolated himself from the world around him for long periods of time. He was really desperate to kick his heroin addiction. He left New York for Hawaii in 1988. He then returned a few months later and claimed to be sober, as you heard in the movie, in which David Bowie, who was playing Andy Warhol, said, uh, you're not sober. I don't care anyway, because, you know, I'm clean now. I'm healthy. That's just not true, Jean. Well, sadly, he wasn't, and Basquiat died of a drug overdose on August 12th, 1988, in New York City. He was just 27 years old. And although his art career was brief... Basquiat had been credited with bringing the African-American and Latino experience into the elite art world. And after his death, the artist was back in the spotlight in May of 2017 when a Japanese billionaire 
bought a painting that was untitled, the 1982 painting of a skull for $110.5 million at a Sotheby's auction. The sale set a record for the highest price for a work by an American artist for an artwork created after 1980. It was also the highest priced painting by Basquiat and by a black artist. Generally, the work of a highly sought after artist appreciates in value upon his or her death. Look at Van Gogh. He didn't make any money until after his death. And then, yeah, everything blew up. But men are taken more seriously than women in the art world, seemingly. At least they were. I mean, women were forced to paint only what they saw at home. Like American painter Mary Cassatt, who painted women sewing on buttons and washing babies in tubs. So why am I talking about Basquiat? Well, the FBI just seized 25 paintings purportedly painted or made by the late artist Jean-Michel Basquiat that had been on display at the Orlando Museum of Art. They just popped up one day and voila, the head of the museum authenticated them and said, yep, they're Basquiat's, and he put them on display. Now, I've looked at the paintings and the drawings, and to me, they look like Basquiat's work. And the director of the Orlando Museum of Art, Aaron DeGroft, staked his career on their authenticity. We stand by our industrial, rigorous, academic process. So here's the backstory. The paintings were found in a storage unit in 2012 after the owner failed to pay his bill. And some guy bought them for $15,000 and thought, wow, these look like Basquiat's. And he agreed to show them, claiming he had evidence that they were Basquiat's. But the New York Times soon raised serious questions about their authenticity. There was one major red flag because one painting was done on a piece of FedEx box and the print on the back of the box was a font that was not created until 1994, six years after Basquiat's death. Aha! Impossible. So Aaron de Groft lost his job after the agents raided the Florida Museum this last week and presented employees a 41-page affidavit for the search warrant based on the investigation, which found false information relating to the alleged prior ownership of the paintings, which is called provenance. Also, a man who is said to have purchased the paintings directly from Basquiat told federal agents he never met the painter. And the Los Angeles art dealer who was providing a living space to the artist who died in 1988 at the time the paintings were allegedly made said he found the whole story unlikely. Now, one art expert, a professor at the University of Maryland, her name is Jordana Sagasi, she objected to the way her name was used in the exhibit claiming the museum misrepresented her statements to establish the artworks as legitimate. She also said an interview with her contained in the exhibit catalog was fabricated. When she brought these concerns to DeGroft before he was fired, he told her to shut up and stop acting holier than thou. Good grief. The FBI subpoena included any and all messages between museum employees and the owners of the paintings purported to be by Basquiat. Agents also asked for all communications between the museum and its art world experts and messages from the museum's board of trustees. Now, the FBI declined to comment on the investigation or its status. If authentic, the Basquiat paintings would be worth about $100 million. That's according to Putnam Fine Art and Antique Appraisals, which assessed them for the owners. Museum officials say they've complied with the FBI's requests, though the museum has no reason to believe it is the subject of any investigation, instead acting as a fact witness for law enforcement. They removed these pictures because it appears they're fake. 
You know, we have fake news. Why not fake art? And they want to remove them from the marketplace so no one attempts to sell these pictures down the road. And I suppose people were paying to go see them as well. So it's not the first time that Basquiat has been forged. In July 2021, the FBI said a Mexican national, Angel Pereira, tried to sell a series of fake works by Jean-Michel Basquiat and other renowned artists for millions of dollars. Now, to trick purchasers, court records say that Pareda falsified the ownership history or the provenance of the forged works. He's charged with a count of wire fraud and faces a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison if convicted. Now, the Orlando Museum of Art was the first institution to display these questionable pieces of art that were found in an old storage locker after Basquiat's 1988 death from a drug overdose. Questions about the artwork's authenticity arose almost immediately after their discovery, and television writer Thad Mumford, the owner of the storage locker where the art was eventually found, also told investigators that he never owned any Basquiat art and that the pieces were not in the unit the last time he had visited. Mumford died in 2018. And of course, the Orlando Museum of Art director, Aaron DeGroft, repeatedly insisted the art was legitimate. In fact, he sent a statement backing his claims, quote, all the experts have examined the paintings and found them to be authentic, exceptional, and among the greatest works. As an art historian, curator, and museum director for 35 years, my own independent due diligence reached the same conclusion. These are all genuine Basquiat creations and one of the greatest art discoveries in recent history. Orlando will be proud to be the city that introduces them to the world, especially during Black History Month. Well, investigators noted, however, an email exchange between DeGroft and the art professor that I told you about before. Quote, I am in no way authorized to authenticate unknown works by Jean-Michel Basquiat and want no involvement in this show. End quote. Well, in an email reply, DeGroft wrote, quote, you want us to put out there you got 60 grand to write this? Okay, then shut up. He went on to say, be quiet now is my best advice. These are real and legit. You know this. You're threatening the wrong people. Do your academic thing and stay in your limited lane. End quote. Ouch. Now, while the exhibit was set to close on June 30th, museum officials say that they are continuing to cooperate with the FBI. Should there be any further requests so far, no charges have been filed at this time in this case. But art forgery is not uncommon. It's believed that 20% of paintings hanging in galleries and museums are fakes. Some of these forgeries are better than the original artworks. So why wouldn't they be worth more? It's because the famed artist's hand via the brush did not touch the canvas. That's what makes it so valuable. Also, it's what the critics say about the art. If the critics don't like your art, then it's not worth anything. If the critics and you become acclaimed and they like your art, then it becomes valuable. I mean, some art I went to a museum one time in Atlanta, the High Museum. They had a cardboard box, a crushed cardboard box attached to the wall as a work of art. I laughed out loud. I mean, my paintings aren't critically acclaimed. I do well. I like to paint. It's my therapy, but I am not going to make a lot of money as an artist. That's why I switched to journalism. Unless, of course, I die. <laughs> So it all boils down to whether or not the work is acclaimed and whether or not the artist has actually touched the canvas. Because sometimes these artists have 
underlings in their studio that paint their works for them, then those are not considered originals unless the artist, like a Matisse, actually goes in and paints a little bit on the canvas himself. And then it becomes a Matisse. Now, copies, replicas, reproductions, and pastiches are often legitimate works, and the distinction between the legitimate reproduction and deliberate forgery is blurred. So it's it's difficult. And there are several ways to determine if a painting is forged. There's carbon dating. It's used to measure the age of the painting, the cracking of the paint. There's all kinds of different ways to tell if a painting is a forgery these days. But back in the 80s, it wasn't so easy, and that's when art forgery was at its height. Now, this forger used bee glue to create the cracked paint, and he would use a heat source and then age the cracks. But with new technology and the authentication process, he was arrested for forgery after he had already made a half million bucks, and he continued his craft behind bars. And uh, I had a single cell because I asked the governor. I asked the governor for oil paints, he agreed, and then pencils and paper and things like that. And so Spotful came to me and we visiting in those days. So what he used to do is to bring the paper in and uh, he'd have it up his sleeve and he used to slide out some paper that used to nick from the, from the library, from clean pages. And the pages were really old, in 1830s, so I could do Samuel Palmer drawings in my cell, put it in my Bible. Next time he came up, I used to roll them up and roll them up his sleeve. Used to take them back home, frame them up, shove them in the auction. So when I came out, I had about four grand coming home. So I was forging in prison. <laughs> and he was using really old paper from the library. That's where they would use old canvases and then just paint over whatever was on there. So, you know, the fact that experts don't always agree on the authenticity of a particular item makes the matter of providence more complex. Some artists have even accepted copies as their own work. Picasso once said that he would sign a very good forgery because he felt honored to be copied. Occasionally, work that was previously declared a forgery was later accepted as genuine, like Vermeer's Young Woman Seated in the Virginals. It was regarded as a forgery in 1947, and then March 2004, it finally was declared genuine, although some experts disagree. And I'll tell you, speaking of Vermeer, the best forger ever was Han van Meegren, and he lived from 1889 to 1947. He was a mid-level Dutch artist with a penchant for a naturalistic and realistic style, and he painted Vermeers. And he became very, very good at it. He spent several years in Nice developing the ultimate process to create the perfect fake. He got the right paint, canvases, wood panels, even recreated a homemade brush similar to the one Vermeer used. He also managed to accelerate the aging process Process and create a plausible crackalure pattern. And above all, Van Meegren's talent was to understand exactly the intangible qualities of a Vermeer that art critics and experts were looking for, providing them with the kind of paints they were both hoping and expecting to find, because they mixed their own paints back then. So when, in 1937, Van Meegren's forgery depicting The Last Supper fell into the hands of a collector and Vermeer expert, Abraham Bredius, not only was it declared authentic, but as the artist's seminal masterpiece. 
<laughs> he never even painted it. During World War II, one of Hitler's Nazis traded 137 paintings for one of Van Meegeren's false Vermeers, and it became one of his most prized possessions. Then, following the war, Van Meegeren was arrested as officials believed he had sold Dutch cultural property to the Nazis. Facing a possible death penalty, he came clean, and he confessed to the less serious charge of forgeries. Like, no, I wasn't giving the Nazis Vermeers. I was giving him fakes that I painted myself. That's only how he was discovered as a forger. He was convicted on falsification and fraud charged on the 12th of November, 1947, after a brief but highly publicized trial, and he was sentenced to one year in prison. He didn't serve out his sentence. He died December 30th, 1947, at a clinic in Amsterdam after two heart attacks. And in a biography in 1967, it's estimated that Van Meegren duped buyers out of the equivalent of more than $254 million in 2022 U.S. dollars. His victims included the government of the Netherlands and, of course, the Nazis. As for Basquiat's paintings, they were seized from the Orlando Museum of Art. They're still in the custody of the FBI. The paintings were set to go to Italy after their show in Orlando, but not anymore. It is obvious to my trained eye that there is much more going on here than meets the ear. But that's a priceless Steinway. Not anymore. That's a priceless Steinway. Not anymore. So, I hope you've had enough culture for one podcast. I certainly have. If you'd like to see my artwork, I do have a store on Etsy. It's called Brimley Boutique. After my cat Brimley, check it out. And you know what? I would be honored if you try to forge some of my work. Thank you. That wraps up Full Rigor. Until next time, thanks for listening.